When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Laurie Winkless about her book, Sticky, The Secret Science of Services. In Sticky, Laurie Winkless explores some of the ways that friction shapes both the manufactured and natural worlds and describes how our understanding of surface science has given us ability to manipulate stickiness down to the level of a single atom. So do we really understand this force? Can we say with certainty that we know how a gecko climbs, what's behind our sense of touch, or why golf balls, boats and aircraft move as they do? Join Laurie as she seeks out to answer uh, the answers from experts scattered across the globe, uncovering a stack of scientific mysteries along the way. Well, Laurie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, as we are living through the times of uh, the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Mm. It's an interesting one. I definitely didn't think I would be finishing and and publishing this book in a pandemic. Um, it has had an impact on how the book came together, to be frank. Um, it meant that I couldn't travel as easily to visit scientists and engineers at their places of work, which is really what I enjoy doing. Um, so that was a real shame, if I'm honest. Uh, I live in New Zealand now, even though you can probably tell by now that I have an Irish accent. Um, so that's been tricky, you know, being so far away from my family um, definitely had an impact on on my kind of mood or mental health, I suppose, in the final stages of writing the book. Um, my husband and I live here, um, we've lived here for five years. But one thing that I found kind of quite surprising about the pandemic and, and interviewing people in a pandemic was just how keen people were to chat you know, everyone was really stressed and anxious and worried, of course. So when I started approaching people, um, you know, about interviewing, speaking to me about the book, uh, for the book, I should say, uh, they almost always said yes. And that has happened previously, but it was definitely noticeable how keen people were to, to speak to me and to talk to me about their work. So in a way, perhaps that was a benefit. I don't know. Um, but I definitely got interviews with people that I didn't expect to get interviews with. So maybe that's a plus. Um, the lack of travel was definitely a challenge. And, you know, I had so many plans as to places I wanted to go and see. And that also had an impact then on what specific topics I could really delve into, in particularly in the later chapters, because a lot of the book was written before the pandemic. Um, so yeah, it definitely had an impact on on some of my kind of 
broader plans about the subjects that I'd cover. But I am really happy with the with the finished product, and I am really happy that I got to interview so many incredible scientists and engineers and artists and historians for this book. Um, that was a real something I really wanted to do. It was a real priority for me from very early on in the planning processes. Um, in terms of takeaways. The book publishing industry, you know, it's really struggling at the moment. Things are tough. Logistics are complicated. Getting things printed and shipped to various parts of the world is incredibly challenging. Uh, lots of bookshops haven't, you know, weren't open for huge chunks of the last two years. So I think the publishing industry's had a pretty tough time. Um, but I am very grateful that we managed to actually make this book happen. Um, I first came up with the idea of it five years ago, so it's been a really, really long time coming. Um, so I am really grateful that we somehow, somehow managed to turn the first draft into a real book, you know, in 12 months. And before we get into this labor of love, can you tell us more about yourself? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm Irish. Um, I am a physicist by training. So I attended Trinity College in Dublin, which if any of the listeners have ever been to the city, it's the university right in the middle of the city, beautiful old campus. Um, so I studied for a double mod, a physics degree with astrophysics. Um, and I'd always been interested in space. I've always been interested in science, to be honest, probably even before I knew what science was. Uh, like many other scientists, I'm a very curious kid. Asked lots of annoying questions of my family uh, constantly, uh, but it was really encouraged. You know, I feel very lucky that both of my parents were incredibly enthusiastic about my interest in science and engineering. My dad's actually a toolmaker, so he's an engineer by trade and training. Um, so I was in a very welcome you know my interests were very welcomed and encouraged at home and I think that that stood me in great stead because it never felt like things were out of my reach or you know that physics might not be for me or whatever so always wanted to go to this university Trinity College I got there and then during my degree I actually got a scholarship to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida which was just the incredible experience. It was an Irish government kind of scholarship where I spent a summer there uh, working and studying at the Kennedy Space Centre with a, a group of, I think there were 14 of us um, in total. And that was just amazing. And it really made me realise that as much as I love physics, something I wanted to do much more of were kind of hands-on experiments. You know, my degree thesis was using space telescope data. So there's nothing kind of tactile about that. You know, there's, there's I'm just processing data at a computer. Um, whereas actually I kind of realized that I, I really enjoy using my hands and I really enjoy, you know, being in the lab, physically being able to build and make and test and touch things. So when I came back from that, I still had a year of my degree to go, but I started looking for research positions where I could actually work in a lab. Um, and, there, you know, there aren't huge numbers of those. Academia is kind of a, not the obvious approach, but I guess it was, I guess it was the first thing that came to mind. It's like, you know, maybe I'll stay and do a PhD. But then I uh, 
got offered this, well, I applied for a job at this lab called the National Physical Laboratory, which is kind of on the outskirts of London. And they were looking for a kind of junior scientist to join their, the materials team, so the material science team. And, you know, I'm an astrophysicist, right? <laughs> like, how useful am I going to be? Um, but anyway, um, I got on very well with the team there um, and they offered me the job. But they offered me the job the same, the, the day after I had accepted a place to do a master's at University College London um, to do sp- space science and spacecraft technology master's there. I really wanted to just do a little bit more learning. So... It kind of worked out, though, because it meant I could move to London. I had a year of study, um, did that master's program, really enjoyed it and kept in touch with the team at NPL. And when I was coming to the end of my master's, I said, you know, if there are any future opportunities, please get in touch. And they said, oh, we're still hiring. So I got really lucky that they were hiring a year later after I had originally (laughs) applied for the job. Um, so I, that got me in the door there. And I worked there as a scientist um, in the functional materials team for seven years. So that's really where I learned to be a scientist. You know, that's that's really where I became a scientist, I think. That's really a remarkable journey. And I'm really glad that you uh, mentioned um, your um, a scholarship to the Space Centre, it just really puts across that early exposure to these experiences is really important, isn't it? Oh, totally. Like I, I don't know where I'd be if I if I didn't if I hadn't had that. Really, um, yeah, I feel very 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 grateful for. It. There are so many opportunities I've had in my life that I'm really deeply grateful for. And in terms of mentors, were there any people that really supported you along the way? This is a really interesting question, actually, and I've been asked it maybe once before and I didn't really know how to answer it. Um, and I think it's partly because I owe a lot to a large number of people. You know, there aren't there aren't specific people who I could say have mentored me throughout my career, but there have been really important people who have taken a chance on me, you know, at various points in my career or who've inspired me to try something different. Um, and they're almost, I'm in such a lucky position that they're almost too numerous to mention. You know, I i had an opportunity, I had a chance where um, my degree, my undergraduate supervisor basically wrote a letter to University College London where I did my master's um, because I had gotten a grade lower than I needed to get into the master's program. And he like went out of his way to to put a letter together to say, look, you really need to get this student in. She's great. She worked really hard. She just had a really bad couple of exams. Like she's really excellent. Take a chance on her. And they did, you know, so there's one. <laughs> and then, you know, I had a couple of uh, different kind of site, kind of mentors in terms of technical mentors, like teaching me different skills and techniques in the lab while I worked at MPL. And then people also who taught me how to communicate science to the public, you know, how to translate what I was doing in the lab into something that was interesting and engaging for the general public. So there are others, you know, I learned that, uh, learned about that from. And I can think of another journal, um, uh, another journalist, I should say, an editor who I approached when I started thinking that maybe I might want to start writing um, that this was I, I don't know if this is true for for everyone but I know for me I was a real diary keeper as a kid you know I always 
I always wrote. I always wrote things down. And even though I loved science, I never lost that love of writing. So after I'd been in the lab for a few years, I thought, I want to do some writing that isn't writing papers or, you know, proposals or reports. I want to do something that's just a little bit more general. And went to an event, met a met an editor from a journal called Materials Today. And I got in touch with them and said, you know, do you ever take pitches, I suppose, or do you ever do you use freelancers? And they said, well, you know, send us in. Here, here's a paper. Why don't you write a little news story about this paper and see how you do? So I did that and I got some feedback and I worked with the editor. And eventually that would become my first ever published piece of kind of general communication, although still for a scientific journal. Um, so, you know, really he set me on my path as being a, um, a professional science writer. And at the time it didn't feel like that. It's only on looking back at it that I see how important that seemingly small and seemingly random interaction was. So yeah, I, I really don't have any specific mentors, but I have lots and lots of people in my life who I look up to and who have been really encouraging of my interests and passions and who cheer me on constantly in the background. I'm so grateful for it. That is truly inspiring. And do you have anything to say to our younger listeners and maybe early career researchers based on your experience? The one thing for me, I think, is if there's someone that you really admire, get in touch with them. And I know that sounds ridiculous and it's very possible that that person will not respond to you, but they might. And it might set you on a path or it might introduce you to someone who can become a mentor for you. Um, I think about one in particular, uh, Mark Miodovnik, who's a phenomenal science writer, but he's also a professor of material science at UCL. And he's done a lot of TV broadcasting and stuff. So I've, I've been a huge fan of his for many years. And when I started writing my first book, I just thought, I'm going to be brave and I'm just going to email him and just say, could I get a coffee with you sometime? <laughs> you know, just like, just to meet him, just to get to know him. And he said, yes. And I was like, what? why? <laughs> why are you saying yes? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a nobody. Um, but, you know, we've ended up becoming really good friends and he's actually like endorsed both of my books. You know, he's written a review of both of my books and he's a really, he's a, he's a real cheerleader, cheerleader of mine who, um, you know, I, I rely on for a lot of things. And that came about just from me deciding to take the chance and just to contact someone. So that's the kind of one main piece of advice. Um, and part of this is also, you know, identifying what your interests are. And they are not fixed. I think as a young scientist, I thought that, you know, I set myself a goal. And even if my priorities changed, I still had to reach that goal. And that's not true. <laughs> you know, life life happens, things change, your priorities change, your interests change. And I think the greatest skill that you can have is to be flexible and resilient, you know, to to move with your interests and if you can, to, to follow the things that drive you and the curiosity that drives you. And finally, my final tip um, from a writing point of view is I, I am very often asked, how can I how can I become a science writer? And my response is always, if you want to become a writer, you just have to write. And there's no secret to that. You just have to make the time. You have to commit to writing. And even if it's 100 words a day, even if it's, you know, a, 
few text messages in your phone or, you know, notes, memos that you send to yourself in your phone, committing to writing is the way that you become a writer. So if you want to write, try it. There's no one has to read it. You don't have to share it with anyone. It can be your little secret as it was for me for several years. I had a website that I didn't share with anyone purely because I wanted to get into the habit and the practice of writing. So yeah, they're my kind of main tips, I think. Yeah, these are excellent points. Very, very uh, much uh, thank you for that. <laughs> so your latest book is Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces. And can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Yeah, um, so Sticky came about, um, actually the idea of it came about when I was writing my first book, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, but really the, the concept of Sticky is that it's an exploration of forces like friction, forces that act on and between surfaces. And from my point of view, and I hope that I managed to convince my readers of this too, what happens on and between surfaces has shaped the world around us. So that's kind of the the top level goal of, of Sticky, really, or the top level idea. Um, as I mentioned, the idea of it first came around about when I was writing my first book, which is called Science and the City. And in one of those chapters, I was writing about what it is, what I was writing about, um, you know, sometimes in the autumn, um, you'll see or you'll hear announcements on the train system and they'll say, oh, you know, there are leaves on the line, so the trains are going to be delayed. And I remember at the time I was living in London and hearing this just felt like such a silly excuse. You know, it was like, you've got these massive trains. How are they being defeated by some leaves? <laughs> so in Science in the City, I wrote a little bit about the, the science of what actually happens when those leaves get compressed onto the rail line and become this very, very waxy, very slippery surface. They really do defeat trains. It's not an excuse. The train wheels can't get a grip on, on the steel track. So I wrote about that and it was interesting. And But then it kind of just stayed in my head, this idea that, you know, something as, as normal as friction, um, something as important as friction is also something that we mostly kind of ignore or take for granted. So that was the kind of beginning idea. It was like, wow, friction is actually really important. And we kind of, we either, we either think nothing about it at all. You know, we, we've all had science classes where we say like, oh, we just ignore the friction. Don't, don't worry about friction in this calculation. <laughs> so we kind of like ignore it entirely or we use it. You know, we rub our hands together when we get cold and that we know that that generates heat or we use it you know, the way that our car tires are designed, that is to manipulate friction, is to take advantage of it. So it's kind of one of these things that is so fundamental to the world around us and how we interact with the world around us that it's rendered almost invisible. So that was kind of, that I, that I got that little nugget in my head, which started off with thinking about why trains can't move on lines that have leaves on them and it turned into this exploration of a whole range of different interactions on and between surfaces oh yes you're absolutely right and this is such an excellent um a really beautiful example of something very if very everyday 
but still so complex, isn't it? Yeah, oh, incredibly complex. <laughs> like, honestly, I say I kind of knew that friction was complex before I started writing the book. Um, and I had done, when I was working at MPL, I had done various uh, research projects where I was looking at hydrophobic and low friction and high friction surfaces. You know, I had done, I had actually done measurements around that. So I kind of knew it was complex, but I don't think I realized quite how complex it is. And it also made me realize why there hadn't been an, another popular science book written about friction. <laughs> Just the scale and the complexity of it became pretty clear pretty early on. So let's delve into some of the science that you cover in your book. And shall we start from the very basics? So what does sticky and slippery mean? <laughs> Great question. Um the thing about these two words are that they're words we use all the time, right? We use them every day. And I think if you ask people what they mean, or for an example of a sticky surface or a slippery surface, they'll be give they'll be able to give you examples. But those examples might vary quite a lot, actually. Um, so, you know, I asked on Twitter one day, if I if I said, you know, to describe something as that you think of as sticky, what would you say? So, you know, there are different mixtures of people talking about like honey, you know, honey is quite a sticky liquid or um, post-it notes, maybe they're sticky and slippery surfaces might be something like maybe ice or um, a frying pan. So everyone kind of has an idea in their minds of sticky or slippery surfaces. But the truth is that in the world of science, those words have no meaning. You know, there's no metric for stickiness. There's no metric for slipperiness. Not really. Um, it's not something like, you know, we've got a metric for how much something weighs or the density of something, right? So we have metrics for that. We can measure those things. We can put numbers on them. But there isn't a scale at which sticky is at one end and slippery is at the other end. That just doesn't exist. And that was partly why I called the book Sticky, because I, I liked this weird juxtaposition of a very commonplace word and people's ideas around what it means and the absence of that word uh, in the scientific literature. So I guess in terms of when I think of, well, maybe you could answer this too, but what do you think of when you think of a sticky surface? I actually want to add to, to, to what you said is it's truly fascinating that there's no such uh, scientific uh, concept as sticky or slippery, because you could think that uh, sticky notes are less sticky than duct tape. So there should be such a concept, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And I think if you, I think if you zoom in a bit closer, like you've just done, if you look at specific products, you can definitely identify, you know, what adhesives, for example, that are less sticky than other adhesives. So yeah, you definitely can think of post-it notes as being a pretty easy to break adhesive, or, you know, you can very easily remove a post-it note from a surface. That's that's why they are, that's why they work so well. Um, whereas, like you said, you have duct tape, which will stick on really, really tightly. So you can think of different glues, you know, different adhesives as having different levels of chemical bonds or different bonds that they can make with surfaces. Um, and I guess you could put those on an approximate scale. But really, if you're trying to think about what's actually going on between the molecules within the adhesive and, and on the surface that it's interacting with, the ways that we can kind of 
quantify those interactions are, are pretty limited, in fact. So adhesive testing. So if you want to understand how well a particular adhesive product, say a duct tape, how that will perform, you have to test it in a way that reflects how it will be used in real life. Because if you think about duct tape, yes, it's very sticky. And you if, you're, if you put a piece of duct tape down and try and rip it off, you're going to have to work pretty hard to break the bond. But if you pick up a piece of, if you, you know, take a piece of duct tape off a roll and rip it, it rips very easily. So is it that? Is it really strong? Is it really sticky? So adhesive tests have to reflect how the product will be used in real life. You know, there's no one perfect adhesive. There are adhesives that will do a very specific job, you know, between certain types of materials. You know, some adhesives that work brilliantly on glass. There are some that work brilliantly on wood. But other than kind of super glue, which we kind of think of as a, you know, you can use it everywhere type of adhesive, which is, is not true. <laughs> there are still limits as to where you can use super glue. Most adhesive products are for a really specific purpose. So that also means that we can't really quantify a kind of overall number for them. We can only describe, we can only put numbers on how they perform in that given test, in that given use. Um. So it is it is an interesting one and I, I find that really interesting and, and chatting to people who who make different adhesive products uh, really really opened my eyes to to how you know narrow really <laughs> our our definitions and our metrics for things like stickiness are. Yeah, this uh, way of uh, thinking about uh, this makes so much sense. For me, for example, because I work in neurodegenerative research, I think about stickiness in terms of maybe surgical glue that you would use uh, to to um, heal the wounds, to stick them, basically to stick them together. But it's not really a glue, isn't it? Because it's biodegradable. <laughs> so yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's the thing I think that I... I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it in that level of detail until until I started because I really wanted the first chapter of the book to to be all about adhesives and you know the, those kind of products that we interact with every day and and also products you know the slippery products too so things like teflon I really wanted to to look at what it is that makes them so special or you know how we can understand them and how we can improve them because a lot of the time you know you're trying to make a stickier surface a stickier substance than you have you want to have one that will create stronger bonds between materials um and that's one of the things like with post-it notes the original the guy one of the two designers of post-it notes um his original his original project that he was working on was to actually design a very very strong adhesive so an adhesive that could be used um in military applications and the he discovered this kind of semi sticky product by accident it was just a, an experiment that kind of went a bit wrong and he was like oh well that's not really what i'm looking for so i'm just going to have to set that aside and several years later that would go on to become the the very start starting process of of what we now know as post it notes so you know understanding glues and adhesive products and even paints and things anything that interacts with surfaces um there are lots of metrics around their performance, but they're always around how they are used. There's no one way that we can define their, we can define everything about their performance in one number. 
So you introduce us to this new term, the tribology. So can you describe what does it mean? So tribology is quite an old science, really. It's uh, the science of friction and lubrication or rubbing and scrubbing. <laughs> it has been described in the literature, which I really like. Um, and Yeah, you can think about tribology as the science of how surfaces rub a- along one another. <laughs> That's effectively what it is. Um, and I, as I mentioned, I had done some tribological measurements um, back in my days at NPL. So I, I knew a little bit about it, but I hadn't quite fully realized how how many industries rely on tribologists. So how many industries, you know, employ people specifically because of their knowledge of friction, um, you know, everything from the food industry and, and how food, how food interacts with our with our mouths and that you know the, we talk about this term like mouth feel <laughs> you'll sometimes hear people talking about that when they're describing uh, foods and and how you know chocolate melts in our mouth or how things feel as we eat them um that's all defined by frictional interactions in many cases so a lot of and and how things flow is also defined by how by frictional interactions so in the food industry tribology is a really big thing and I did not think about that. Um, but tribology is also a really big thing in industries that are related to kind of mechanical systems or engines, anywhere that things are moving along one another or rotating around one another, anywhere you have moving parts, you're interested in friction. Usually you're trying to kind of minimize the friction or to try and control the friction, make it as kind of consistent as possible. What, what you don't ever really want is for a machine to have moving parts that work for a while and then get slowly less and less reliable. You want to keep that friction consistent. And usually tribologists are involved because they will be defining what compounds we could use to kind of control that friction, what lubricants. So lubricants are materials that sit in between two moving surfaces and make those surfaces easier to move relative to one another. Um, and there are lots of different compounds that, that can have those properties. But tribologists are really heavily involved in, in making those decisions and in designing systems that have a very specific, very well-defined amount of friction between different surfaces. So I suppose my next question could take us another two hours, but <laughs> if we try to describe how does friction work... <laughs> yeah, that's that's the big question, and honestly, there's no <laughs> straightforward answer to it. Um, I I personally like to separate it into solid friction and friction. So, so by that I mean two solids that are touching one another. So that's kind of one type of friction, and then you have um kind of fluid friction. So you might have a surface that has a liquid on top of it, or a surface that is in moving air, um, or even two different liquids that are interacting with one another. So all of those are kind of examples of how we could differently define friction. But if we think about solid on solid friction, because that's, I think, the one that we instinctively recognize, and it's one we probably talk about in school even very early on. And that could be something like a book sitting on a table, right? What's going on at the interface between that book and the table surface? And really, it's all about this type, this type of friction is all about roughness. 
So everything in the universe is rough. <laughs> you know, it's really not an exaggeration to say that. Even materials that we think of as being very smooth, like we might think of a glass as being a very smooth surface. If you look at it under a microscope or at different magnifications, you will eventually see that that surface is actually very bumpy. It's very textured, covered in different patches and bumps and troughs and valleys and cracks and everything. And when you have two solid surfaces like that that are sitting on sitting in contact with one another, so say like I, like I said, like a book on a table, the underside of the book and the and the top surface of the table, they're both rough. And as I try to slide the book on the table, those rough surfaces, those textures start to kind of interact. They kind of bash into one another. You know, tiny parts of it might break even, um, but they'll certainly they they will certainly bend and flex a bit. And in those interactions, you lose energy. We usually think of the energy lost to friction as heat energy. It's not always just heat energy, but this is why when you rub two things together, you can generate heat. It's because you're losing some of the kinetic energy, so some of the energy that you're you're imparting onto the book to try and slide the book to get it moving. You lose some of that kinetic energy and it's transformed into heat energy, usually lots of other types of energy too. So that's kind of solid on solid friction. When you've got surfaces, say like a solid with a liquid or a fluid flowing over it, then you start thinking about, you're still thinking about energy loss, really, um, but the type of energy loss that you get is, is a little bit different. So on things like aircraft that are flying through the sky, you'll have something like skin friction. So that will literally be related to how the air molecules bounce and flow and move around the surface of the aircraft. They will, some of the the, the molecules that are closest to the surface of the aircraft will actually be stationary. The molecules a little bit further away will have some kinetic motion. Further away again, they'll have even more kinetic motion and so on. You can kind of think of it like you're trying to push your way through a really busy railway station. Um, the, there will be some people that won't be moving at all and others who are fur further away from, from that choke point, they could move very freely. And that kind of sucks and drags on the surface of an aircraft. And that is a form of friction. You've also got other forms of drag called form drag. So that's the shape of an object defines on how it moves through a material or it moves through a fluid, excuse me, um, and, and other types of drag. But they are really they're really frictional interactions between, in this case, the air molecules and the surface molecules. So if I were to try to summarize what friction is, it's a loss of energy that happens where two things meet. But that's a massive simplification. Yeah, it's truly fascinating. It's such a wide subject. So even fluid dynamics really come under umbrella of friction. I think so. Yeah, I would argue that. <laughs> <laughs> So could you give us examples of how friction is utilized in the different realms, perhaps in the natural world, in sciences, in art? Mm, sure. Um, I'll give you just a few examples. Just I'll try and keep it brief because I know I'm talking too much. <laughs> um, but in the natural world, I think there's kind of two examples that I just mentioned really briefly. One 
are earthquakes. So I live in New Zealand where earthquakes are a thing. Um, They're something you kind of have to build into your daily life and you kind of expect that they will happen. But friction is absolutely at the heart of earthquakes. Um, When we think about fault motion or earthquake motion, it's all defined by, it's what we call frictional sliding on a fault plane. So that's actually what most earthquakes are about. It's about two pieces of rock or a fractured piece of rock um, that because of the stresses and strains that are generated um, by plate tectonics, but also by by other motions deeper within the Earth's crust, um, because of that motion, rocks are under this constant stress and strain. And if they break and start to move along one another, that's an earthquake. So this is frictional sliding on a fault plane. So friction, we we don't have earthquakes without friction. And this type of friction is really interesting too. It's called stick-slip friction. And what it means is that sometimes the two surfaces, so in this case, the two rocks, um, they will be stationary because the stresses are building up and building up between them, but the rock's not moving. And then suddenly it will jerk forward. And the stresses will build up again over time and jerk forward again. So you get this zigzag, this stick slip. Um, so that's and that's actually a type of friction that we see throughout. Lot, there's lots and lots of examples of that in the natural world. But for me, earthquakes are are the key example. So I gave them a whole chapter <laughs> in the book. Um, the other one is ice and what it is that makes ice so slippery or to have such low friction. Um, that defines a lot of how things melt, for example. Um, we think we, we see, you know, those interactions in glaciers, um, particularly at the moment where we're seeing a lot of glacial melt Um, but we also interact with those if if you're someone who skates or skis you also interact directly with ice and its low friction surface um, when you ski or skate so that's they're kind of my two natural world examples Um, and the sciences I mean there's a million examples but possibly my favorite one is the fact that our understanding of friction particularly the friction that exists between an aircraft or a surface and the air that's what has allowed us to explore our solar system um if we had not understood if we had not found ways to understand how objects move through the air at incredibly high speeds we could never have broken the sound barrier And if we hadn't broken the sound barrier, then we would not be able to leave our Earth, really. And we also would not be able to deliver objects, spacecraft, landers through atmospheres onto other planets. Because the interactions between those objects and the air around them, they generate huge temperatures, generate massive amounts of heat and all because of friction, nothing else, purely because of friction between the air molecules and the surface itself. Um, if we had not understood those things, if we, we could not have designed materials to withstand those forces. So that's possibly my favorite example. I don't know. Um, I actually had a really good example from an, an, an email. It wasn't, it's not included in the book at all, but um, someone read the book. Um, he is a researcher at I think it's Johnson and Johnson, one of those big kind of companies, um, and he makes contact lenses. And the reason he emailed was because he has been measuring friction his whole career, really. <laughs> and I hadn't quite thought about this, but 
the interaction between a contact lens and the inside of your eyelid, it has to be very smooth, right? You want you want very low friction between your eyelid and the contact lens. Otherwise, it's very uncomfortable. You know, you think about what happens if you know you might get you know you get blisters on your fingers if you're rubbing things if you if you if you're like me and you do lots of DIY and you're using sanding block you'll quite often get blisters on your fingers because of the friction um but you don't want that to happen in your eye so one of one of his research projects was basically number one to to show that you can control the friction between those two surfaces and number two that that's really important for the comfort of a contact lens so contact lenses have also been designed with low friction in mind. So there really are lots and lots and lots of examples of of how friction and how important friction is in in the modern world. Oh that's such a great example about the uh, the lens because that's exactly what I get usually. Uh, one one out of 10 uh, contact lenses usually does uh, rub and uh, you know, bruise a little bit on the inside no. of the eye. It's incredible. Wow. Interesting. And what about arts? So do we, how do we use friction? Because thinking about perhaps chalk um, on, on, a, on, a, on a drawing board. So that's a kind of friction, isn't it? To be able to have uh, this deposit. Yeah. And actually chalk is quite an interesting one because chalk itself can be kind of can kind of act like a lubricant. You know, if you have ever drawn chalk on a chalkboard and then rubbed your fingers over it, it can feel very smooth. And that's because of the incredibly small, fine grained nature fine grained nature of chalk so it's very very smooth it's very very small um so you can actually use it as as a kind of a lubricant but artists have been manipulating friction you know for millennia truly um in the book i talk a little bit about kind of ancient rock art and and how um our understanding of of surfaces and of materials, so the use of things like ochre, which is basically just rock that's been ground up and mixed with other things, um, that allowed us to kind of make our mark on the world, to interact with surfaces on the world, um, to interact with surfaces, you know, using our our knowledge of surfaces. Really, um, there is a really famous example in a in an Egyptian tomb of someone actually manipulating friction, um, and this goes by, way back to um, how you know that there's always that question about how did the ancient Egyptians move the things? You know, how did they move these massive blocks of wood? And a lot of people now believe that the ancient Egyptians had a deep understanding of friction and lubrication and what they realized was that if they added a particular quantity of water to sand they could make sand much more slippery they could make it easier to drag things over sand and there's actually some evidence of this in a tomb it's the the tomb of jehuti hotep who was a provincial governor in egypt um and there's actually some like on there's a there's a mural on the wall that shows what we think is this process happening so someone pouring liquid in front of a sled carrying a heavy stone statue and when scientists have actually kind of tried to do an experiment that mimics this you know a much smaller experiment that matches this matches the scale of of this one um they've seen that it would actually work. <laughs> there is a quantity of water that if you add it to sand, reduces the friction between a sliding object and a sandy surface. So, 
not only has not only does friction have a, a role to play in art like um and how and surface interactions to play in art so how paint is made how and why it sticks to walls chalks and ochres and how they interact with surfaces but actually the manipulation of surfaces so the the understanding of friction has also been manipulated and used to create some of the greatest you know pieces of monument that we have ever created as a race as a race of humans and I think these concepts were also applied uh, for explanation of the walking rocks in some of the deserts where you have like a huge boulders and then they move overnight and nobody knew how. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's my understanding of it too. Yeah. So thinking about uh, materials that we use nowadays, can you tell us how do you make waterproof material? Oh yeah, that's a real good one. Um, there's lots of different ways. Um the kind of the old fashioned way and it's still stuck around because it's quite effective is to get a fabric like a cotton fabric, you know, just a normal fabric and coat it in some sort of waxy material. So this you'll see kind of wax jackets. Um, that's really what they are. They're normal fabric, but they've been coated in this wax. And what the wax does is that it effectively repels water. Um, you what waxes and, and other polymers really are, are, are very, very long chains of, of hydrogen atoms that are bound to carbon. And that doesn't leave any groups for water to interact with. So water is a fascinating material or fa- material in and of itself. Um, as you might know, and some of your listeners will know, it has a strong dipole. And what that means is that its electrons are not quite equally balanced in the molecule. Um, you've got one, two hydrogens and, and, and one oxygen and, and the share of electrons isn't quite symmetrical. So it's always keen to, to interact with other materials. It's always keen to bond uh, to other materials. But things like waxes make that very difficult because they don't offer any groups for water to bond with. And there is a way to measure materials and define how waterproof materials are. So obviously, this is something we've talked about a lot. It's how do we define, how, how do we measure um, things like stickiness and slipperiness? But there, there is a real metric for that, and it's called the contact angle. Um, and it's also a measure of something called surface energy. There's all these different terms, but effectively what you do is if you want to see how waterproof a material is, you put a droplet of water on that material and then you measure the angle that the edge of the water droplet makes with that material. So on something that we consider hydrophilic, and what that means is that it loves water, it attracts water, and what you'll see is that the droplet won't just sit there like a beautiful round sparkly thing. It will spread out immediately. So the water molecule, excuse me, the water um, droplet will just spread out on top of the surface. Now you'll see this on, on a material like cotton, right? You put a droplet of water on it and it will just spread and it disappears. If you then coat the cotton in this wax that tries to repel water, put a little water droplet on that, what you'll see is that the water droplet holds its shape. It stays like a ball. And that creates a very high contact angle between the water and the surface. And what that means is that surface is very kind of unattractive to water. So that high contact angle tells you that this material is waterproof. 
So waxes are, are one way to do that. Um, you can also use things like effectively like Teflon. So other there are other compounds that also similarly repel water in the same type of way. So, you know, Gore-Tex and things like that, that we see lots, lots of raincoats being made out of, they are designed specifically to have that really high contact angle with water. And what that means is that water doesn't stick to it. It'll roll straight off the surface. And they have taken inspiration from nature to, to produce these materials like the lotus leaf the lotus leaf has a very high contact angle it's super hydrophobic it's so water repellent that if you put a droplet of water on a lotus leaf and tilt the lotus leaf the water will run off and it will leave no trace behind so now thinking about the bigger picture in what ways the understanding of uh, friction and some other concepts could help us with the management of the natural disasters or some environmental impacts of uh, industries mm. it's a really it's a really big question um definitely the the geologists who i interviewed here when i spoke to them about earthquakes um they were of the agreement really that developing a, a more complete understanding of, of those frictional interactions that happen deep under our feet um, would, ha- would at least give us a chance of being able to predict some of the bigger quakes. So they don't, no, one's, no one believes that, or at least none of the people I spoke to believe that it's possible that we will be able to predict every single earthquake that ever happens. But maybe if we better understand exactly what's happening and, you know, are fluids moving around in the crust? Are they changing things? Are they lubricating interactions? Or is water involved? All of these questions. If we can understand those better, maybe we can maybe we can predict some of the big quakes. So that's kind of one obvious one. Um, but really, the the big thing for me is that friction, although it can be very useful, you know, we've talked about ways in which it can be used and manipulated. It can also be incredibly expensive. So more than a fifth of the world's total energy consumption goes towards overcoming friction. So more than 20% of the energy we use is being spent in overcoming this energy loss, overcoming this frictional these frictional interactions. And in the tra- yeah, it's it's an it's a crazy number and in the transport sector alone it's about 30% of all energy use that goes to losses is lost due to friction. So if we can find ways to reduce the friction that we don't want, because, you know, sometimes we do want friction. We do need friction between tires and the road, for example. But if we could reduce some of the energy losses that we, we get from friction, that could make a huge difference to our energy footprint and the amount of fossil fuels that are being used. Um, like one example, just I'm saying this now because I've just been tracking a package that I'm waiting to arrive from Ireland. Um, about 90% of global trade happens by sea. So if we could find a way to reduce the amount of drag that these big container ships experience as they move through the water, you know, maybe we could use low friction coatings. That would also save, that would reduce the amount of fuel that they use in shipping our stuff to us. Um, so they're the kind of obvious ones, well, not the obvious ones, the really big ones from my viewpoint. But the other thing is that we also need more sustainable lubricants. So a lot of the lubricant materials that we use are byproducts of the fossil fuel industry. So we need to be looking for greener, more sustainable lubricant materials that will help us 
to continue controlling friction into the future. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Sticky, surprised you the most? Okay, this is my favorite thing. And it's so niche. <laughs> but um, The sport of curling was something I had a kind of an interest in just, just as, you know, just like most people watching the Winter Olympics, I'd see this game that seems so different from a lot of the winter sports where you have this big stone with a handle and people are sliding it and rotating it along this big long sheet of ice and they're trying to hit other curling stones and and reach a target at the end so I was like this is a pretty cool sport I like how weird it is and you've got these people broom it but they got brooms and they're brushing the ice in front of the stone and I just found it really fascinating but what I realized quite early on in my research because I knew I wanted to write about ice um, was that scientists still do not understand they still cannot explain why a curling stone moves the way that it does like this sport has been played for 500 years at least <laughs> and it's only it's only now that it's only in the last kind of decade and a half, really, that people have started to design experiments and to, to try to understand this interaction because a curling stone just doesn't move in a log- in a way that makes kind of instinctive sense. So an example I give in the book is if you slide a bottle, an empty bottle, please, so that you don't spill anything um, along a table, if you slide it in a straight line, it will travel in a straight line. If you slide it so that you are rotating it clockwise, the what you'll see is that the path of the bottle will kind of curve and it will curve in a clockwise direction. And, it, and that makes kind of, there's, there's lots of physics models that explain how that happens. And I, I go into detail in that in the book. With a curling stone, if you, if you rotate it clockwise, it will also curl clockwise. So it goes in the opposite direction to our existing friction models. <laughs> and I just found this really fascinating. So speaking to scientists, uh, kind of both sides of the debate, because there are kind of two competing theories at the moment, speaking to both of them and talking to them about, you know, why they think the other one is wrong. <laughs> that was a real joy. And uh, it's really got me, It's be, I've become really fascinated by curling and I've, I've written heaps about it since the book. <laughs> so it's, uh, that was definitely a favourite for me. Oh, wow. That's something to watch during the Winter Olympics now. Definitely. Highly recommend. It's like a ballet of friction and brooms and stones. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could have any characteristic that could be sticky or slippery in any definition that you would like that animals use, which one would you like to have? Oh, it'd have to be the gecko. I would love to be able to climb surfaces as easily and skillfully as a gecko. And um, the gecko gets in a whole chapter to itself um, because it's the way that it does that. It's it's climbing superpowers are so incredibly complex, uh, astonishing results of evolution. Um, that would definitely be my, my superpower. Imagine being able to scale tall buildings. How cool would that be? I think it's a great uh, new hero for next comic book, uh, Woman Gecko. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Get girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? 
Oh, uh, that second one's harder to answer. Um, at the moment, we're speaking just before Christmas, so I'm looking forward to having a, a nice long break over the holidays. Um, Sticky is coming out in the US in February and in the rest of the world in March. So I still... I still have lots of, of book-related things to do in the coming months. Um, but I'm mostly just kind of back to my normal work, which is a lot of science journalism, interviewing scientists about their work. I also work with some research labs and engineering companies uh, on big projects, big communication projects as well. So that's kind of the main thing. I haven't yet had an idea for a third book. I have the very, very, very early beginnings of an idea, um, but I'm just going to I'm just going to take a little bit of time off, I think, and we'll see what what comes out at the end of that. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Um, probably the best place is my website, which is lauriewinkless.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter a lot. I'm always on there. So my handle is at laurie underscore winkless. So they're probably the two best places. And um, the book, so Sticky is being published by Bloomsbury and they're a big publisher, which means it should be widely available anywhere the books are sold. And as someone who really loves her local bookshop, um, I would really encourage your listeners to to think about supporting their local bookshop and getting them to order in a copy of Sticky if they haven't already got it in stock. But of course, it's also available on all the big platforms too. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for keeping everybody glued up to their headphones. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 